All right, we are wrapping up the book of First Timothy today, our study in First Timothy. If you'll turn to First Timothy chapter 6, we're going to be looking at verse 3 through the end of the chapter. We've been in this series called Blueprint for God's House, and we've been looking at the book of First Timothy. Paul is writing to his young protege in the faith. He's writing to his son in the faith. He is what he calls him. And, um, and so these are letters, this is a letter written as instructions for setting up God's house. And we've looked at this in detail, and as we get to the end of this book, it's like building a house. He's going to throw in a lot of details here at the end. Anybody ever built a house? And you get to the end of building a house, and you're like, how much more is there to actually do? Are you serious? And then you do the final walkthrough and you realize all the little details that have not yet to be completed. And uh, when we were building our house last year, um, they were finishing up these fine details and Jessica decided to drive her parents out to the house. And there were some workers inside the house finishing up those final details. Well, the front door was locked and... um, Anytime we wanted to go see our house, we would just lift the front windows up and climb in. And uh, let me tell you, uh, they decided to do that, and Jessica was still on the phone, and her dad uh, lifted the windows up, and he stepped through, and he was met with, what are you doing here? Why are you here? Who are you? And uh, we're trying to finish these details. Are you even the buyer of the home? No, my daughter is. And then all of a sudden, um, Jessica came in and, and smoothed everything over. But there are all of these final details, right? All of these final details. Well, Paul has a lot of final details that he wants to share with Timothy. And we're going to look at those today. Let's look at 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 3 through the end of the chapter. He says this, Teach and urge these things. If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. Paul is just straightforward, right? If, if someone is teaching you something other than what accords with the good news of Jesus, the gospel of Jesus, and that teaching points you towards godliness, becoming more and more like Jesus, then you need to understand that you yourself or whoever's teaching you is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words, which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicion, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth. Imagining that godliness is a means of gain. In other words, they see walking with Jesus as a means to an end, rather than truly experiencing God and becoming more and more like Him. But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world and we cannot take anything out of the world. Right? There are no U-Hauls behind hearses. Right? Whatever you accumulate in this world, you cannot take with you. 
But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmless, harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. That's a really important phrase. We've twisted that phrase to say things that it doesn't say. Right? Money's not bad. The love of money, loving money, is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. In other words, they have hunger pangs for riches. But as for you, O man of God, flee these things. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. Fight the good fight of faith. Everybody say that with me. Fight the good fight of faith. Let's say it one more time. Fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Christ Jesus, who in His testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which He will display at the proper time. He who is blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in an unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see. To Him be, be honor and eternal dominion Amen. As for the rich in this present age, charge them to not be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who provides, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. Godliness. Becoming more like Jesus. That's truly life. He's trying to help us to see these final things, these final details. What does it look like to build your life on God's blueprint? And then he gives some final instructions to Timothy. Oh, Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you. Avoid irreverent babble and contradictions of which is falsely called knowledge. For by professing it, some have swerved from the faith. Grace be with you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You for these moments that we have together, we pray that Your Spirit would help us to understand these instructions. Help us to build our lives on the blueprint that You have designed for Your house and Your people. We ask You for this in Jesus' name. And everybody said? Amen. Growing up when I was in elementary school, 
from the time I was in kindergarten through fifth grade, every year I went to the principal's office or got suspended for fighting. I know that's hard to believe, as calm, cool, and collected and kind that I am now, that I went to the principal's office every year or was sent home and on occasion was suspended for fighting. Most of those times, I would say, were worth it. Most of the time, I would say they were worth it. And a couple of those times weren't. Let me explain to you the times that were worth it. In the, in the times that were worth it, I know times are different now, but I would get in trouble for standing up for someone who was being mistreated. So this would be friends of mine who were girls and boys would like pull their hair or push them down on the playground and... Um, I went to a private school, and that stuff even happens there. And so when I would see this happen, it was like I had a radar, right? And I could see it happening, I could hear it happening, and I would rush to the scene. And before I would even ask about how my friend was doing, I would punch, push, wrestle, jump on top of, and begin to exercise justice. <laughs> And almost on every occasion when this would take place, when my parents were notified, here's what they would say to me. We wish you wouldn't have chosen those actions, but we're proud of you for standing up for your friends. This is what they would say to me. Obviously, there were other circumstances where that wasn't the case, where justice and righteousness and standing up for my friends was not the case, right? I was motivated by selfishness. I was motivated by having my own way. And so I would begin to fight my friends or fight my fellow students. You see, we are constantly faced with those same choices every day. Will I stand up and fight for the right things or the wrong things? Will I be on the side of right or on the side of wrong? Will my fighting be for selfish reasons or for godly reasons and for the purpose of serving others? And will the way that I fight actually be appropriate? This is what my son Hudson talks about all the time. That's inappropriate, Dad. He says that to me all the time. I'll be trying to like just goad him a little bit and make him laugh. And he's like, that's inappropriate, Dad. So the question is, is will we be appropriate or inappropriate? And I think in this chapter, Paul is helping us to see a blueprint for God's house and what does it look like for us to fight the right fight? To fight the right fight. And so the big idea for today is this, that contentment in the gospel of grace will lead to fighting the right fight. Contentment in the gospel of grace will lead to fighting the right fight. You see, Paul has been writing this letter to his young protege in the faith and he's been encouraging him in what does it look like to live by the gospel of grace? How is it that the people of God are formed? What does the leadership structure look like? And how is it that we can do this in a way that honors God. And 
honors Him for who He is and what He has done for us. You see, he's writing this letter to ensure that the church at Ephesus is built by God's design. And throughout this series, we have consistently come back to this core question, and it's this, am I following my desires or am I living by God's design? Am I following my desires or am I living by God's design? You see, even when I think back to those fights, there were things that I desired in there. Some of those things were good desires for these young women and these young men who were friends of mine to not be oppressed and to not be pushed down and to not be uh, abused. But then there were false desires. There were selfish desires at times that came into play. And so we got to see in this passage today, what does it look like to live by God's design? You see, at the core of this whole chapter, Paul is helping Timothy to see the importance of building our lives on the gospel of grace. And he's going to do that by, in this last chapter, talking about something that all of us struggle with. And it's the word contentment. Contentment. You might not struggle with that with maybe physical possessions, but we all have places in our lives where we struggle to be content. It's interesting because Paul talks about this. He says something in another book. He says, at all times and all places, I have found myself content. He understands what it looks like to have the most essential thing in our viewfinder so that when we fight... We fight the right fight. The question is, is are you content? You see, some of us will say this, I will be content if I have blank. Fill in the blank. Here's the thing about that, is if it's something that can be taken away from you, if it's something that can be taken away from you, your contentment is on shaky ground. But if your contentment is in the gospel of Jesus and the fact that He lived for you, these things that we just sung about, that He died for you, these things that we just sung about, that He was buried for your sin, these things that we just sung about, and that He rose from the dead so that you could put your faith and trust in Him, that that is a place to put your contentment where nothing can be taken away. In other words, contentment is not dependent on our outward circumstances. Contentment is not something that you gain or achieve in life. Contentment is something that you choose. You can choose contentment or not. You can choose this. And so Paul talks to Timothy about contentment in this passage because contentment or the lack of it can throw your whole life off course. Contentment, the lack of contentment, can throw your whole life off course. Choosing to not be content means choosing all sorts of conflicting desires. Conflicting desires. And when you and I are conflicted, we're at our most vulnerable place. We're at our most sensitive place. We're at our most 
vulnerable place for the enemy to come in and attack us and say, see, you see, this goes all the way back to the garden in Genesis chapter three. This isn't even in my notes. I just thought about this. I just think about this. What does he do? He attacks their contentment in his relationship with them. Right? They walked and talked with their master, their, their God, their savior in the garden every day. And he says, just one thing you cannot eat. You cannot eat of that tree. Because he knows that in the day that they eat it, they will surely die. He's told them this. And what the enemy comes and does is he tempts them to believe that God is holding something back from them. He's keeping contentment from them. And he even says, you know what? The reason why God doesn't want you to eat of it because you will become like him. And he begins to attack their identity and it's around their contentment. You see, we've had this problem from the beginning. And that's why Paul comes to this at the very end. Because if you and I don't have our identity built upon the gospel of grace, we will look in all kinds of places and fight all the wrong battles. You see, the psalmist says this, Psalm 73, Whom have I in the heaven but you? And earth has nothing I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. If we ever needed a verse to memorize over and over and come back to, to challenge the enemy and to challenge ourselves in understanding what it looks like Fight the right fight and to be content. It's to grab a hold of those phrases from the psalmist when he says, you are my portion forever. You are the strength of my heart. My flesh and my heart may fail. There's nothing I desire except for you. The question is, can you say that this morning? That's what we're going to look at. That fighting the right fight is one of the most important decisions that we as a church, that we as individuals, have to make every day. If not, we will choose to fight the wrong fight. And it comes from a place of a lack of contentment. So contentment is the gospel in the gospel of grace will lead to fighting the right fight. Let's look at the very first thing in verse 3 through 5. And it's this, that the lack of contentment leads to fighting the wrong fight. He says this, If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicion, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. So right out the gate, Paul is telling Timothy, hey, instruct, teach, correct, push these things down deep into the foundation of the church because there are people who will come in and teach a different doctrine. He describes this kind of person in great detail. 
He describes them. The kind of person who lacks contentment in the Gospel of grace, fights the wrong fight. He says they are puffed up. They're conceited. They have an unhealthy craving. In other words, he gets very descriptive and he says this, they're conceited, they love controversy, they like to fight, they're selfish and they're greedy. If you go down to the next part of the chapter, he talks about this love of money. In other words, the love of money and this endless desire for more things comes from a lack of contentment and fighting the wrong fight. He's descriptive. Here's what I know, though. Nobody gets up and says, you know what I'd like to do? I'd like to lose the fight today. Nobody does that. Nobody gets up and says, you know what, today I'm going to choose to be the most selfish, self-centered person in the world. It's not like they flip the switch and do that. That there are choices that are made along the way that lead to that kind of life. That lead to the life of lacking contentment. To where you have to find affirmation. That's this quarrelsome spirit. This is something that all of us need to think about in the world that we live in today with social media. Why am I posting this? Is it because I'm trying to fill this God-shaped vacuum in my heart for affirmation, for people to click like, I like that, I agree with that, or to be quarrelsome to say, I'm going to fight with everybody who comments on my page who has disagreement. What is the core reason for you posting that, communicating about that, interacting about that? Is it truly standing up for what is right, or is it your lack of contentment? Stepping on toes this morning, I'm sorry. That also leads to the kind of life that says, I'm going to accumulate. I will be content if I have blank. You see, it's, it's fighting arbitrary battles that don't really lead anywhere. Paul is saying that there is a kind of life that's worth fighting, and it, we're going to get into that in just a minute. It's a life that's fueled by godliness. It's saying, I want to fight my flesh put to death my flesh so that I can become more and more like Jesus. That's a fight worth fighting. But he's describing for us, before he gets into that in detail, the kind of life that's not worth fighting. The kind of life that actually leads to great damage from discontentment. See, the absolute worst part about being in a fight is if you didn't expect to be one in the beginning. It's just like walking down the street and all of a sudden somebody comes out of an alley and just like hits you across the face. That's the worst kind of fight because you weren't prepared for it. This is why it's like always be prepared, right? We know these people. We have some of these people in our church, right? It's like always be prepared. They got an exit strategy for everything. I'm a little bit like that. Even yesterday we went to the restaurant and I was like, can I sit and can we get a booth back there? So that I can have my back to the wall and I can see everybody who comes in. Anybody else like that? Anybody else like that? Yeah. So those are those of us who are very vigilant, right? But even the most vigilant, the worst kind of accident, the worst kind of fight is when you find yourself there all of a sudden and you don't realize you're in it. And Paul is bringing this to our attention because he's saying, don't get caught off guard about how important contentment in Christ is. Because if you are not vigilant about this, 
it slides down really, really fast. And you find yourself seeking affirmation in social media, seeking affirmation in all kinds of places. And when you don't get it, you will find ways to rig the game to then get it. It's interesting the word that he uses here in verse number 3. He says, sound words. One translation says, wholesome words. The, the root word there in the original language means this. It means healthy. He's saying there are individuals who have an unhealthy appetite for the things that lead to discontentment, but there are those who should nurture, we are all those who should nurture ourselves towards having a healthy appetite for sound doctrine. Instead of having an appetite for the ways of Jesus, when we lack contentment, we have an appetite for self. And that selfishness leads to a desire away from God, not towards God. You see, the false teachers here in Ephesus love to argue and speculate and debate rather than teach the simple truths about Jesus. This is true of so many things that we interact with. Rather than finding the thing that we're most important to with, that we're interacting about, founded in the truth of God, we try to fill our lack of contentment with the truth of an individual. This is the same problem that they had in Ephesus. This was false teaching because it had nothing to do with Jesus. And the result was a group of people who were godless and lacked contentment and were quarrelsome. It's interesting because he took great care to say what a leader in the life of the church should look like. And he says they're not quarrelsome. They're not given to controversy. So he's being really careful here to help us understand what it looks like to have a craving for God and not a craving for self. You see, they weren't seeking God's kingdom. They were seeking financial gain for themselves. Now you might be thinking this morning, well, that's, that's for the people at Ephesus. What's that got to do with me? Well, here's the deal. You and I are in the fight for truth every day as well. And if that truth is not centered around the message of Jesus and the good news of Jesus, we will find ourselves in all kinds of controversies and quarrels and lacking contentment and trying to find it in all the wrong places. You see, if you don't fight the right fight, an unhealthy craving of controversy will just happen. That's the natural inclination that we have as human beings is to move away from the truth of the Gospel and be selfish and try to find our identity in something or someone or somewhere else. And the worst fight that you could ever experience is not knowing that you're in one. And coming to a rude awakening and realizing that you invested your entire life on the wrong thing. I have so many friends that are roughly my age, 40s, 50s, who are doing these kinds of things. They're leaving their spouses. They're quitting their jobs. 
They're leaving their churches. They're shipwrecking the faith. And it's all around this idea of fighting the wrong fight. They're fighting the wrong fight. Rather than saying, you know what, I'm going to do the hardest thing, which is to stay faithful to Jesus and to read His truth and to allow His truth to change my life, they're hitting the eject button and it's leading to destruction. Worst fight you could ever experience is not knowing that you're in one and then coming to a rude awakening that you've been in one all along. So he says this, that the lack of contentment leads to fighting the wrong fight. But now he's going to show us, verse 6-8 through and 11-16, through that contentment in the Gospel of grace leads to fighting the right fight. Paul is helping Timothy in these verses for him to see the importance for himself and the church at Ephesus to fight the right kind of fight the right way. When I think back to those fights, I was fighting the right fight the wrong way. Right? I I was like jumping on like a third grader. Right? And boom! Laying haymakers. It's fighting the right fight the wrong way. So Paul's going to help us to see how to fight the right fight the right way. So he says, and he grounds this in a pursuit of godliness. He says this, look at verse 6 through 8. But godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into the world, we cannot take anything out of this world. But if we have food and clothing, with this we will be content. In other words, if you have the basic needs of life, and you have Jesus, contentment. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into the senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. Let's go down to verse 11. But as for you, O man, flee these things. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. Fight the good fight of faith. Take a hold of eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Christ Jesus. So he's going to tell us that this contentment comes from a pursuit. So the first thing in this pursuit, you can write this down, is this, flee from sin. He says this. He says, run away from it. Flee from it. Run away. Flee these things. When we think about fighting, our first strategy isn't run away. Right? Some of us, we're flight people. We got fight, we got flight people. When I was young, I was like the fight guy, right? Run to the fire, right? Run to the gunfire, right? This is what Paul is saying, but the first thing we have to do before we do that is we have to run away. Flee sin. You know, sometimes we have an inappropriate view of how to overcome the sin in our lives. We're like, I just got to like, be able to like, be around it, but not uh, like, give in to it. No, run away from it. First strategy, run. This was the first strategy that Joseph took, right? When he was tempted with Potiphar's wife, he didn't stick around and like 
talk, talk to himself and be like, you know what, I'm not going to give in to this. I'm going to be around it, but he, uh, in the world, but not of the world. No, he was like, run. First strategy in pursuing contentment and godliness, run away from sin. Run away from it. Paul tells Timothy the first step in growing in holiness is to run away from or escape or flee from sinful things. These things he has in mind are the false teachers who are engaged in bringing about this perspective that godliness was about getting something, about gain. He's saying run away from that. You know, sometimes the best offense that we can have is a really good defense. I experienced this when I was in high school. My senior year, we went 26-2, and and we had no, in basketball, we had no offensive strategy. Here was our strategy. We came into the gym during conditioning, and he's like, get on the line. I remember my coach. He's like, get on the line, and we ran wind sprints up and down. And then he's like, okay, now get back on the line. And we did slides all the way around the basketball court. And then we had goals all the way around, and we had this balcony. And he's like, okay, a lap is this. You're going to run up the stairs, across the balcony, down the stairs. You're going to go around the, the court. And as you go around the court, if you can dunk, you got to go up and jump and grab every rim, run, grab every rim, run, grab every rim. And so we would do this. And then when we got done doing that, he's like, okay, go to the bleachers. And we would run up the stairs and down the stairs. Then we would do box jumps up on the top step and down on the next step. And then we would jump up the stairs all the way to the top and then run and then go do do laps. And we were like, coach, when are we going to touch a ball? And he's like, in a couple weeks. And then we would run some more. And then we'd run some more. And then we'd do push-ups and we'd do calisthenics. And then the day came where we were like, okay, coach, we have a game in like a week. What are we going to do? And he's like, you're going to run a fast break. That's what you're going to do. And so for 48 minutes, what we would do is pressure the ball. We'd pressure the ball the whole time, play defense the whole time. we get steals, we go up. And we went 26-2. and two. We had one offensive play when the game would slow down, and we had one out-of-bounds play. Our plays were defense. That's what we did. We ran a full-court man-to-man. We ran a full-court 3-2. We ran a full-court 2-1-2. We had all of these defensive plays. It was about defense. And Paul starts out the gate here, and he says the best defense for living a life of contentment is run away from sin. Run away from it. Look at your neighbor and say, you need to run away. That was so weak. Come on. Look at your neighbor and say, you better run away. Thank you. Second, he says, pursue sanctification. Pursue sanctification. In other words, pursue righteousness. We see this in verse number 11. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, gentleness. Here's what he's saying. You don't just run away, you run to someone. He's saying contentment and fighting the right fight is about running to the gospel of grace, the person and work of Jesus who was righteous on your behalf. And so he might have a perspective of what it would look like for your life to be righteous. He says godliness. In other words, the greatest thing that we could see about our lives would not be the house we have and not the car that we have and not the vacation that we have and the experiences that we would want, but that we look more and more like Jesus. Righteousness, godliness, and faith. 
We pursue absolute trust in God's promises. That's contentment. When you're not quite sure if all the money is going to come in for the bills. And rather than running to your selfishness and trying to figure out how to solve that problem on your own, you trust in the promises of God. Yes, you work hard. Yes, you save. Yes, you look at ways that you can cut back. All of those types of things. But we put our absolute trust in the promises of God. There's so many amazing promises. But I love these. You shall not see the righteous forsaken, nor his seed begging for bread. In other words, you can trust that God is going to provide for you. He can provide in the most crazy, strange circumstances. But you can trust His promises. He says this, righteousness, godliness, faith, love. So here we must use the biblical definition of love and not our world's meaning. Love is also an action word whereby we seek the good of others. We work hard to care for others. One of the ways that you can fight back your selfishness and your lack of contentment is to just serve other people. Because Jesus came and He laid down His life for the sheep. He served other people. This is an area here at Mosaic we got to get better at. He's going to let you know. we got holes in all kinds of places. Serving up in the kids' ministry. You're like, I don't know. I'm not really gifted to do that. That's okay. Serve. Serve. Use your gifts. Use your time. And say, hey, once every five weeks, once every six or eight weeks, I'm willing to jump in there and serve and give a group of people who've been serving a break so that they can be served. In other words, the love of Christ compels us. It compels us to do something, and that something in this case is to beat back our selfishness and to pursue sanctification. Love. Steadfastness, he says. Steadfastness. We could also use the word perseverance here. We actively pursue steadfastness. In other words, we remain Christian even when other people walk away from it. We pursue Jesus and the importance of gathering as a church even when all kinds of people around us are saying that's not really important. We pursue steadfastness. We seek to be like Job who remained faithful to God clearly to the very end. So first, we run away. We flee sin, but we run towards godliness and we pursue sanctification. And then we fight the good fight of faith. He says this in verse 12. And the fight that he's talking about isn't passive. It's not passive. Listen to Ephesians chapter 6. It says this, We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, We wrestle against principalities and powers. It's a war. This is a war. It's a war against indwelling sin. It's a world against the world. It's a war against the hostility towards God. We don't wrestle against flesh and blood. We wrestle against principalities and rulers and spiritual forces. So we do this actively pursuing God. The reality is is hardships will come to your life. And the difference between fighting the wrong fight and fighting the right fight is centering the fight 
around the one who fought for you. He fought the biggest fight for your life. Jesus, He came, He lived, He lived the life that you could not live. You couldn't live this life. He died the death that you deserved. And so we put our faith and trust in Him, understanding that He is fighting a fight on cosmic levels for us. And so we trust that God is working all things together for good. And so rather than pursuing the good for self, I'm going to pursue godliness and who He is and what He has done for me. Really quickly, as we wrap up, he says this, take hold of eternal life. Take hold of it. What is this? There's lots of things in this. There's pages and pages written by commentaries on this, by authors of commentaries. And so simply, let me distill it down to this. Storing up treasures in heaven. Take hold of eternal life. That the eternal life that God has for you is not something that we just look forward to, but it's also something we experience now. We store up treasures in heaven, knowing that one day our great King and God is going to come back and take us to be with Him forever, but also to recreate this new heavens and the new earth. And so we are laying up treasures. We're storing up treasures in heaven, not so that our contentment is taken care of in the future for ourselves, by ourselves, but by trusting who God is, trusting what He's done for us, and saying, you know what? I am not going to just live for the here and now, but I'm going to make an investment, a deposit in the future so that I can worship God with it. That's taking hold of eternal life. It's storing up treasures, and it's beginning to celebrate and live the eternal life now. Then he says, keep this commandment. To keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. Real practical. Paul is saying, keep the commandment. Keep the commandment. And understand to keep them pure without dropping your guard. These words matter. Keep these commandments. Keep your guard up. Realize that you're in a fight. Say, how do I keep my guard up? Read it. Remember, the worst fight that you can ever be in is to realize you're not in one. Every day, you've been given an opportunity. Arm yourself with the truth so that when you get in the fight for your life and for your contentment, you're prepared. The worst fight you could ever be in is one that you don't know that you're in. Lastly, contentment in the gospel of grace and fighting the good fight is worth it. It's worth it. This is why Paul brings it down and he begins to talk to him again like a son at the end of this. Oh, Timothy, oh. Do you hear it? It's like this longing. It's like when my parents sat me down after those fights. Oh, I I wish you wouldn't have done that. Right reason, wrong way. Paul is sitting his son down in the faith and he's saying, Oh, Timothy, guard! Guard what has been entrusted to you. Guard it. In other words, retain the truth. Hold on to it. Hold fast to it. So that when the fight comes to look for you and to fight against your contentment for the truth of God, 
your contentment that He is going to fulfill His promises and take care of you, rather than giving in to the false teaching, guard it. Guard what's been entrusted to you. Retain the truth, Timothy. Hold fast to it. Hold fast to it. Timothy would have heard this and understood what he's already said to him. He's already said to Timothy, hey, remember that your faith came from your grandmother and your mother. It was passed down to you. In other words, Paul is telling Timothy, hey, guard this, protect this. This is an investment that's been going down the line for a long period of time and don't let it stop with you. Don't let it stop with you. Retain the truth. Hold fast to the faith. Everybody say this with me. Hold the truth. Hold fast to the faith. And don't forget it. That's what he's telling Timothy. Hold fast. Don't forget. Guard it. It's worthwhile. You didn't invent this faith. You received it. It was passed on to you. You have a responsibility to pass it on to somebody else. To pass it on to your kids. To pass it on to your grandkids. To pass it on to your neighbors. To pass it on to your coworkers. Hold fast. This fight is worth fighting, but you will fight the wrong fight if you give in to your selfishness. I want you to imagine as we close a scene on a battlefield where two buddies who've been fighting side by side are speaking to one another. One of them is dying. He's been mortally wounded. From his pocket, he pulls a watch, a family heirloom, which has been in his family for five generations. And he says to his friend, if you get back home, take this to my mother. This watch has been in my family for five generations, and I cannot take it home to her. This is an entrusted heirloom, a possession. Take care of it. This is what Paul is saying to Timothy. The most precious thing in our life is that Jesus lived for us, that Jesus died for us, that Jesus was buried, that Jesus rose from the dead to give us everlasting life, but so that He would see us become more and more like Him, that we would be a picture of the godliness and righteousness of who He is to this world. And here's what Paul says at the close of this book. Take care of this precious heirloom of faith that you have. That the most important thing that we could do as we build God's house is to take care of it. To take care of the faith. This isn't done passively. Our world is telling us over and over, take care of you. Invest in you. Invest in your perspective. And it's craziness. Because it's leaving us hopeless, tired, worn out, frustrated, disillusioned. And it's leading us to make the craziest of decisions. To say things like, boys are girls and girls are boys. Do all kinds of crazy stuff. 
Where does this come from? It comes from a lack of contentment in who God has made me to be, who He's designed me to be. And it's saying, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to do what Adam and Eve did all the way back in the garden. And I'm going to grab a hold and say, I'm going to decide what makes me content. Here's what that leads to. It leads to destruction. It leads to destruction. It leads to mental illness. It leads to all kinds of godlessness. We don't say that in judgment. We just say that and say, you know what? The most important thing we could do is to see Jesus and what He's done for us and then to say, my response to that is to open up my heart and open up my life and say, you know what? God, I'm going to trust You. And the result of that is we satisfy. Scriptures tell us that if we will pursue Him, we'll be filled. We'll be filled. In other words, we'll have everything we need. Maybe not everything the way that the world defines it in terms of possessions and experiences and relationships, but the way that God defines it in a stability that's eternal. I pray that we would all take an active role in seeking contentment in Christ, fighting the good fight, and that may God give us grace to become more and more like Him. Because he fought the right fight for us. The right fight for us was he died for our sin. All of them. Including our lack of content. So that we could find our hope.